Dave Pryor. Welcome to the Reluctant Agilist. Today, I'm here with Atif Rafiq. Um, thank you for being here. It's a pleasure to join you, Dave. And we're going to talk all about uh, Atif's new book, which has a long title, so I'm going to look at it for a second. Decision Sprint, the new way to innovate into the unknown and move from strategy into action, um, which will be out by the time this podcast goes live, so you can pick it up at Amazon or anywhere else you want to pick up books. Um, so as before we get into this stuff, would you mind giving a little bit of your backstory for the folks that may not be familiar with you or your work? Because you've worked a lot of impressive places. Well, thanks, Dave. Um, well, I've had a few different stages to my career. Uh, I really grew up in internet technology companies as a product manager, general manager, and I had done that for about 15 years uh, up through companies like Amazon. And I thought I'd do that for, you know, for for the rest of you know my working life. Um, but in 2013, things began to change in the world. More companies saw themselves as needing technology to, to drive their growth. And I became the first chief digital officer in the history of the Fortune 500. I did that at McDonald's. And that put me on a 10-year run into a large traditional companies incumbents. And it's come maybe around for a few decades or longer in the case of Volvo, 90 years. Right. And uh, working very C-suite roles to help these companies sort of uh, set their their long-term vision and and make it happen. Um, so really a two two part career, and now I'm kind of on my uh, my next metamorphosis, which is a more entrepreneurial stage in terms of scaling my impact through ideas, um, which is why I wrote them. Cool. So could you before we get into the book, I'm really curious about the the being the first chief digital officer, because that wasn't a thing. And all of a sudden it was a thing. How did you figure out what it was supposed to be? It's a, it's a great question. I mean, it was an unknown for me for, you know, for McDonald's as a company. Um, um, but I think when I got in there, um, I, I sort of quickly realized that, um, you know, McDonald's is a great company for a variety of reasons. And one of those reasons is convenience. And if you can connect digitization to convenience and how convenience will work in the future, that you can unlock a lot of great things for customers and, and actually grow, grow the business as well. And so, you know, really just situating and explaining digitization as the next level of de delivering convenience for customers is really what worked for, for McDonald's. And of course, that became sort of a norm and a standard, you know, a lot and a lot of other companies that had a bricks and mortar component, which is how do you think about you know the customer experience and use technology to take that to the next level. Yeah. And in McDonald's case, it was unlocked through a few different service models, um, where, for example, you could uh, avoid standing in a line and use a kiosk and place your order uh, in a more relaxed way, and then have the food delivered to your table through table service that came to life through delivery and through you know, mobile order and pickup. And so those three new ways of using McDonald's, you know, those those uh, turned out to be really great growth drivers for, for the company. But of course, in the beginning, you know, explaining all of this to the company, it was something where we just needed to have a level of conviction and faith around, you know, we're going to figure it out and navigate what does digitization mean. It's certainly not the case when you're the first doing a role uh, in a company of that scale where you have all the answers in the beginning. 
I keep thinking of that scene from our founder where they're they're like organizing what the restaurant's going to look like on the tennis court and trying to figure out how to optimize it. But you had hundreds of different branches of the organization, each that were developing their own digital products, and you had to get them all kind of aligned together and get them all to work together, right? I mean, that's a massive undertaking for McDonald's. Well, I think a lot of companies... Uh find themselves in that position where at some point they begin operating like a collection of companies as opposed to a single company. Mm -hmm. So, and that may make sense for certain aspects of how you run a, a business, for example, on your, you know, your, your month to month marketing campaigns, for example, you don't want to be running that out of McDonald's headquarters. You want to be doing the right things in France and in Singapore mm -hmm. and in Poland. And there's no way for headquarters to know what those right promotions are, for example. Um, but other things are universal, right? Like a shopping cart is universal. If, if you think about the e-commerce space, right? how you interact with a retailer um, and a quick service restaurant, that would, in my view, you know, sitting here in 2013, my strong point of view was that that would be more universal and common than, mm -hmm. than, than distinct by region. And so we needed a common uh, set of capabilities, not only technology-wise, but in terms of the overall you know, customer journey and flow. Okay. So sharing that and getting people to buy in that that made sense was a step in the process. And then, you know, the ability of the company to to invest as one company is yeah. what allowed us to really crack the nut because then you get the power, power of scale, right? You build yeah. it once and you use it uh, you know, globally, that's that's really powerful when it works. And just I want to make sure that people can kind of envision the scope of this, because it's it's not just lots of different versions of technology, but there's also the power structure that's been set up. And you might be saying, you know, this can be solved locally. This is something we have to have uniform across the organization. And that might take things out of the hands of a lot of different people who are trying to, like, build their name by creating their own best version. It's really also a matter of trust because, quite frankly, um, sometimes headquarters hasn't delivered. And I'm not referring to McDonald's, but you know, any sort of big name out there, sometimes headquarters uh, is slow and bureaucratic. Yeah. right? And so if you're sitting there in Singapore and your competitor is cranking out apps and features, you know, very quickly, um, you know, then then you want to know, well, we'll be able to what are the benefits? Right. Are we going to be able to compete? And so part of my work was trying to say that this is not your typical headquarters project. You're bringing in Silicon Valley talent. You know, there's a pace and velocity that we're accustomed to. And we'll, we'll, we'll figure out a way to bring that same, you know, similar pace and velocity yeah. here um, and quality, right? Because, you know, the way you build things technically needs to be things that aren't, you know, Band-Aid and yeah. they need be able to scale with the the ambitions of the of the of the of McDonald's. Um, so there was a lot of work to convince. From a structural standpoint, what I chose to do was to make sure that this wasn't it was kind of a hub and spoke where we had embedded resources in each of the major markets that were yeah. integrated with, you know, that were part of my organization. So they could basically take the local teams along on the journey, right? and have a level of empowerment where they were involved with product road mapping, just by way of example, and they really understood what we were building and how we were building it and when it was going to be available to the customer. 
Okay. And and the quality thing that you mentioned, that's a for all the brands, all the companies you work for, that that is part of the promise of every one of those organizations. Amazon, McDonald's, uh, Volvo. I mean, that that is something that can't slip. Well, hundred percent. Now, when it comes to technology, though, you know, if you take a traditional company, therefore and their forte is not technology, uh, those organizations may not have the 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 understanding of what good technology is and yeah. all across the technology stack. If you're at Amazon, you know, you have the benefit of, you know, a lot of great, you know, engineers, a lot of division of labor, you have platform teams, you have product teams, yeah. and their interfaces, their APIs, their accountability to, to each other, who their customer is. Sometimes it's an internal technical team that's your customer. So it's a very sophisticated, you know, technology environment. Well, when you come to a Fortune 500, sometimes they're outsourcing it to yeah. some other firm. They don't have visibility. They are interacting primarily with project managers and not engineers. So one thing I did at McDonald's is it followed the chain between you know the product manager and the engineer. And in some cases, when I started, there might be five people in the middle, none of whom were technical enough to be able to describe you know, how the feature would actually work. Okay. Um, you know, from a software standpoint. So for me, that was a no-go uh, because, I, you know, really want to make it uh, the teams as lean as possible. So, you know, saying shifting from project management to product ownership, yeah. that's that's a new concept. Didn't exist at Volvo, didn't exist at McDonald's or MGM. And I, I put those things in place. That's the front-end process of, of of a transformation, quite frankly. And you need to invest a lot of time in that and so i have a phrase where i talk about the what and the how and i put just as much energy into how we're working okay. the talent the setup the structure as i do into what we're shooting for in terms of the vision for the customer okay cool thank you um I want to talk about decisions, and to be completely honest about it, my hope is that the big draw for people with this podcast is going to be that they're going to look at the title and go, what the hell is a decision sprint? So <laughs> would you mind um, kind of giving a, a quick explanation of what it is? We'll dig into it in a minute, but what it is and what problem does it solve? Sure. Uh, well, my book focuses on helping teams make the leap from promising ideas okay. to action by starting with questions. And I chose to focus on the hardest part of turning ideas into action, which is embracing the unknowns. And in the book, Decision Sprint, I introduced the notion of upstream work, where, which is where a promising idea has more questions than answers. And I used that very simple definition and asked your audience to reflect on that as well. You know, if you have an initiative, what stage are you at? And I think everyone will relate to the stage where there's just a lot more questions than answers. And mm -hmm. that's a body of work where teams spend weeks and months sorting through all that before, you know, things have settled down into some potential solution or a recommendation. Okay. So I really want in the beginning to really not offer a solution, but uh, surface something that I think is very universal, but doesn't really have a name. And so this idea of the hidden structure of upstream work is really um, my first objective is, wow, okay, upstream work, I wish we had given that a name. And it's in contrast to downstream, of course, which is once you have a direction and you're trying to build things, for example, yeah. or you're moving more into execution mode. 
And so, and the second thing I'm trying to do is introduce methods to tackle upstream work. Okay. So in my mind, and I do that at a couple altitudes, the first altitude is to break it down into three stages. So upstream work consists of exploration, which is a concerted effort to surface the relevant considerations, especially the unknowns, and get to the bottom of them. Okay. Alignment, which is about bringing together what's been explored to draw conclusions. And thirdly, decision-making, which is committing to necessary actions. Only after doing these three things, you know, can you really move on to execution in a way that's going to be smooth enough. And then I go even more detailed and break it down into 13 workflows. Uh, so that's the main sort of um, sort of fabric of the book. Okay. So I'm assuming that, uh, I probably shouldn't use the word assuming. I'm assuming that when, let's say, somebody at the top of the food chain has an idea for something um, and everybody gets excited about it, that until they've figured all this stuff out, there's a lot of assumptions about what it will become. And and one of the problems with people running right to execution is they maybe don't fully understand, one, what they're getting themselves into. They don't have clarity across the organization on what problem they're solving, who the you know, who they're solving it for. Um so that and that's a big part of the product ownership part of this, right? Well, sure. Yeah. I mean, I think what's typical in companies is well. Yeah, maybe a team wants to propose an idea or, you know, it's became a priority for the company, as you said, from the top, Dave. Um, and now we need to put a plan on the table. Mm -hmm. So what happens is, you know, people typically do a brainstorm. But what happens in a brainstorm is it vacillates between exploring the idea, clarifying the problem, rushing to opinion and judgment on yeah. what the solution is, sometimes rushing to opinion and judgment on what a solution cannot be. Mm -hmm. And so you get sort of, um, you're left with a lot to be desired across all the, those fronts. You don't have you know, enough clarity on the problem. You haven't surfaced enough of the important considerations. Maybe you've overweighted some considerations. Okay. Uh, are trying to draw, draw conclusions. And then what do you do? You throw another brainstorm at it. Um, but eventually, you know, this has to land in a cohesive recommendation where you can show the breadcrumb between, you know, what you were trying to solve for, what you explored, and how you arrived at those recommendations. And sometimes that can be a dicey proposition. You get to the meeting with, let's say, stakeholders, and they begin to poke holes, and they ask questions like, well, show me how you arrived at this conclusion. And if it's not a confident answer, then the project can suffer, can experience fits and starts. Right. The confidence, the alignment can can begin to unfold you know that's all of those things are not great for for teams and they're they're not great for the mental health of the team either which is something yes. which i think we now understand okay so in my po classes my product owner classes i have a slide that uh, where i talk about design thinking and lean startup and design thinking to understand the problem lean startup to figure out what the market will respond to and whatever agile practice we're talking about as a way of executing on that response it sounds like this is sort of an an arc that kind of crosses over the or includes elements of all those but maybe extends them a little bit is that fair to say yeah i, I am pro design thinking in fact i was the face of it in the fortune 500 for uh you know for a long time starting in 2013 uh where 
um, you know, we'll say, okay, well, we don't really believe that, you know, we can change the restaurant experience of McDonald's from X to Y. It won't work. It'll, uh, it won't go great. Customers won't like it. We'll say, well, let's just go ahead and, you know, start learning by doing. So I'm a big believer in that aspect of design thinking and learn by doing. Okay. At the same time, I think we rush to do things yeah. like prototypes. Yes. And I think prototypes don't uh, cover all of the learning that we need in organizations to solve today's problems. Okay. So, and as a result, I believe that design thinking is not as inclusive as uh, what we need in companies to solve today's innovation opportunities. And I know that's a lot, so let me let me break it down. Yeah. Um, first of all, I think in in the decision sprint, when we talk about starting with the unknowns and building an, an exploration, the building block is questions. And if you look at questions, you know those are very democratic. Everyone in the organization who's relevant to a problem we're trying to solve, whether it's finance or regulatory, or you know teams that don't build and ship things, um, they all have relevant input in the form of questions that they can contribute to help us canvas a problem. Mm-hmm. And today, that this is a big gap in uh, in design thinking because you know only certain corners of the company naturally gravitate towards backup and wireframes and hey what. What does good look like for the customer? All the really smart people that can draw. Exactly. Which (laughs) is like, I was guilty of, you know, abusing a whiteboard, you know, (laughs) for many, many years. But that whiteboard, you know, more than wireframes, uh, I think needs to start with, with questions as a way for enough of the people in the organization to contribute their input of like, what could go wrong? You know, mm-hmm. what are the unknowns? What do we need to get to the bottom of? I think we yeah. really to start with that. And sometimes we rush to start prototyping. We haven't built that question list in a strong enough way. We haven't sourced the input from enough of the state, you know, people with uh, relevant input to develop that great question list. Mm-hmm. And we haven't been doing our discovery against those things that don't lend themselves to prototype. Okay. Right? And that is, I think, where design thinking can, uh, you know, be enhanced with an approach like decision sprint, so that you build and run explorations in a better way before you get to the point where you're, you know, making recommendations or drawing conclusions. Okay, so is it safe to say that rather than leaping right into a backlog of features, we might start by creating a backlog of questions to be answered? and then prioritize them based on, I guess, risk or something like that. A hundred percent. That creating space for that is the number one needle mover to, okay. you know, in my experience. Where, and, and leveraging the whole organ or a larger part of the organization than just the smart people that can draw. Yes, a hundred percent. Because, you know, it's kind of a really interesting um, way to uh, turn skepticism on his head as well, because, you know, Let's be honest, out there, you know, we have, you know, people who are PMs and UX people and uh, project managers, and we think, okay, well, we we sort of get it. We want to move fast. You know, we want to move as fast as Silicon Valley. Let's get out there. And then sometimes we short change involving other corners of the company, compliance, legal, regulatory, supply chain, et cetera, et cetera. And they don't understand the language we're talking about when when we're 
throw up a ton of wireframes. Yeah. Um, but they have important input. Uh, it's not just that, that their buying is required. It's that they have important input. If that's not factored into the problem solving, well, we are solving the problem in a way that's incomplete and therefore will experience some symptoms like less support and less, you know, and more fits and starts. Because they didn't have a voice. Okay. Do you, do you find that there's an, like a compulsion to begin building as quickly as possible? Because there's that whole idea that like fail fast. Like let's just, we'll build the wrong thing, but we got to build something right now. Fail fast, fail forward. It's what Silicon Valley has been based on. But I can tell yeah. you from my own conversations very recently with the largest tech companies in the world, that that's not what the next era of innovation is about for them, you know, okay. much less a company that has a smaller R&D budget. Because the days of blank check innovation or experimentation at Facebook, Google, and Amazon are over. Maybe okay. they'll be back in 15 years, but that'll be another cast of characters. You know, that won't be us, right? So we, yeah. need, we need a different way forward. They're not comfortable any longer with blank check experimentation because... You know they have competitive pressures in and of themselves right yeah. so they, they cannot afford innovation in silos they cannot afford uh projects that don't have a clear purpose those things happen when as you put your finger on teams say hmm i'm doing the right thing if i jump immediately to action yeah. i need to start building something and there was a beauty in that you know trust me i love that idea of a PM, a couple of engineers, a UX person just cranking it out. Cranking it out. It's amazing. It's a beautiful feeling. But just creating the space to to build a, an exploration and really understand what are the unknowns here and get get more of a sense of priority around which ones are the make or break things that we yeah. need to get to the bottom of, that creates more clarity faster. So it's about clarity faster as opposed to failing sooner. Okay. So, so you're going to get, um, across, I'm assuming it's a cross-functional range of people into them. How big, when you're, when you're planning a decision sprint, how, like, what's the size of the the group that has to be involved or should be involved? I mean, I'm always a believer in the Amazon to pizza team, because I think anything more than that is just intolerable, you know, and just too much input. Right. So okay. core team that is cross-functional where, you know, you have, you know, anywhere from, you know, three to eight people somewhere in that zone, I think is is your core team, but mainly you're trying to reflect a few different competencies. You know, somebody's okay. in the field, somebody's in headquarters, right? Um, for example, you know, somebody is purely commercial, another person is all about, you know, pro the product, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you want that sort of- uh, That range. Know, range is a great word for for the input because in the beginning, is really about the quality of the input. You need to be obsessed about the inputs. I was always obsessed as a general manager at Amazon about input because I knew that, you know, why would I want blind spots and be believing, you know, we're on the right track only to discover something different in three months. So I wanted to know as soon as possible, what are we missing here? What are important factors and considerations? And it doesn't, doesn't mean you do what other people, uh, you know, tell you what to do right but it's if you get that input then you can filter you know using your own you know understanding of the problem like yeah which one of those things is going to be more make or break okay 
So if it was Volvo, in addition to uh, somebody who's designing an engineer's designing parts of the car, then you might also be including somebody who works at a dealership selling the car, right? I think that would be a beautiful thing. In fact, you know, I, I have I had a conversation with the CEO of Volvo who recently, um, you know, uh, stepped down after a 10-year very successful run. And, you know, one of the things he shared with me was this idea that um, when, when we had a big initiative, it, it wasn't exactly ideal for him to see the same three or four people in the room every meeting about the topic. <laughs> so that wasn't exactly confidence building. It was more okay. that there might be these three or four people cross-functional in headquarters hey, seeing you know every two weeks on the big initiative that we're talking about here. But he would want to know, did you talk to someone in a more commercial and dealer facing, you know, in one of the markets, you know, what would they say about this, right? Okay. Uh, leaders crave these kind of inputs. There needs to be a way to to know that we're getting them. Yeah. In my head, I'm drawing this parallel between musicians who only play with the same four people all the time, but but they need other ideas. So they're going to want to bring in outsiders who are not part of their group to spark new things within the team and help them resolve the conflicts and that dissonance of working with new people that you don't know is going to generate new ideas and you'll be able to explore things you would never have found. Imagine a scenario where you know, a team says, we have done nothing other than develop a great question list. We have no answers and no recommendations, but we spend, let's say, 10 days formulating the great question list. By the way, here's who was involved in formulating this list. If you show that to a chief executive of any company, that person is going to say, time well spent. I'm glad you did that. My confidence level is high at the moment. You know, okay. please, please proceed. So I make a joke in a lot of my classes that most of the executives in my PO classes, that most of the executives people encounter, each one of them thinks they're the second coming of Steve Jobs and that they know what the universe needs and they don't need to talk to anybody else about it because their stomach bacteria told them what the world wants. This is the opposite of that. It is. I mean, the best CEOs that I've uh, encountered are um, very learning oriented. Um, okay. And what that means is that they understand that, um, uh, you know, basically the faster that they get all the right inputs and the puzzle pieces in front of them, the more they're going to be able to you know, have a point of view on how to solve this uh, puzzle. What is the solution? Okay. And then accelerate, you know, how we can actually go on and move to action. Okay. So that is where the best CEOs play is really the speed of the learning around the problems uh, that we're, we're trying to solve. And I think that's where, you know, I mean, there could be a difference between the CEOs of the past and the CEOs, of the future, quite frankly. Yeah, I mean, th this is a pretty big difference because you're talking about an organization that is going to end up prioritizing learning over everything else. I mean, because that's where you're going to figure out what the next right thing to do is. Well, let's put it this way. I mean, in the past, the way you got to the top is, you know, you have stable environments uh, with stable business formula and somebody lasted 30 years. Um, other people didn't. Now that person's at the top. So, of course, when you walk in the room, there's a lot of deference and an understanding that that probably that person probably knows better. Mm -hmm. But, you know, as Satya Nadella said in his book a few years ago, I'd rather be a learn it all than a know it all. And yeah. why is that? 
because it's impossible to scale yourself to every problem the company is trying to solve when those problems are all novel and new. Yeah. But anything worth, you know, the value is not created in doing the same thing you know, for the hundredth time. It's about doing something that might be the first time your, your company is doing it. Yeah. And so there's a level of reflection required in the leaders of today to say, um, this is brand new unknown territory. And I'm more, my leadership style needs to be more about calibration over control. Okay. Because the moment you go into control uh, uh, sort of style leadership, where you know best, you're a know-it-all, you have all the answers, right. you're going to shut down the brain of the team, and you're going Start to... Start the echo chamber. It's going to be very, very... Uh, it's not going to work out well. You'll, yeah. you'll probably be a low-growth company. Um, okay. And so we need... You know, I think progressive leaders understand this is a different different way to lead, and they're they're comfortable with this idea of calibration. So can you talk a little bit more about that? Because that was one of the things that I was, I don't think I totally understood the way the way that you're using that, or at least my experience with calibration is not, I'm not 100% there yet. So could you explain how that part works? Sure. I mean, calibration over control is one of the main leadership mantras I used, you know, in, in my leadership time in the C-suite of large companies. And basically what it means is that, um, we are really what good looks like for example when we're trying to solve a problem or we're having a meeting is that we yeah. activate the collective intelligence of the room so we need to understand what other people see and their input and we need to to invite people to participate it's more than that right it's more like okay this is this is the conclusion we came to and here's why we came to this conclusion does anyone disagree? Are we missing anything? What What do you think about that? Well, I think a little different. Well, why is that? Okay, that's that's fine. That's that's useful. That we will tweak how you know what, what we're currently thinking to integrate that input from you. Um, you know, it's about inviting people to to question and to kind of problem solve together. That's uh, really what calibration is about over a leader. So, in other words, you, you leave the room if someone says. How did we get to that decision? The answer is not because the boss said so. Um, it's because they said, well, we, we thought it through together, and yeah. that's what made the most sense. Then okay. you know you've done good calibration. So when you come in as a leader to an interaction with your teams, you're taking this calibration mindset. You're trying to draw the collective brain to reason through the problem and come to a common way of, of how we see it. Uh, moving forward okay i feel like we could spend a whole hour on that but i just <laughs> so we, we you spend several days coming up with the list of questions and then what is the next step so in decision sprint getting the first base is a great question list that everybody feels has sort of canvassed a lot of the unknowns and then okay. of course you make those questions actionable and you begin to develop faqs so okay. you so run the exploration. So you build an exploration based on the right problem statement. Now you're running an exploration, which is, you know, the work of, uh, you know, assigning people to be point to take a crack, crack and maybe answering a question. Okay. Uh, you know, some of those questions can be answered just through, you know, reasoning or, or some research, other things may need some data. They may, may need to go to a prototyping, for example. Okay. Uh, and you're basically trying to get to the bottom of the key questions. And you're, you're trying to do that in a way where you can bring the FAQs together 
so that uh, the point at which you're trying to draw conclusions, everybody is doing that based on high quality information and the common understanding of that information. Okay, so everybody who is involved is in some way contributing to chasing all these things down, bringing all the information back together so that you can look at it. But it's it's not just focused in one specific area. I mean, it could be technology. It could be what does the customer want. It could be what is it going to be like to work with this partner. There's all different kinds of things that would be included in that, right? Correct. Yeah. And obviously it's based on the competencies, right? Like if you have questions around, you know, supply chain, that's going to be different people perhaps than, uh, you know, people modeling the ROI or people looking at, you know, um, you know, customer preferences by way of example. So, you know, that, you know, you typically have program managers or project managers who are basically trying to assign the work based on the competencies that are relevant for people to, uh, you know, provide answers to questions, review answers mm -hmm. to questions, but you're trying to develop sort of like a good FA set of FAQs mm -hmm. as, uh, as a document, as content, before you actually ask people and probe them to for the conclusions that they would draw based on the exploration. Okay. So exploration, you run an exploration, and then you draw conclusions. So what I think is so cool about this is that you're like you're slowing the pitch down a little bit further even and really just trying to before you settle on an answer, just understand everything that's going on around you, the entire environment that you're working with. I call it um how to how to go slow fast. And so I okay. steal from Daniel Kahneman, who won the Nobel Prize for his book, Thinking Fast and Slow. And yeah. so this book. This, you know, Princeton um, behavioral psychologist who won the Nobel Prize talks about brain function and system one and system two. Right. There's system one for very quick, intuitive decisions. And there's yep. system two for work that requires, you know, seeing more information, synthesizing it, reasoning through it, and then coming to a judgment. And guess what? In companies, the higher value work is system two. Yeah. But guess what? There is no method and system for it. It's just like okay. discovery, research, um, you know, explore the problem. Yeah. Well, that's the whole thing. You know, the rest of it, I trust that companies know how to do well. Um, but how do we take the slow part, so to speak, system two, thinking slow, and make that go very fast? I think it can just okay. take a couple of weeks to build the exploration based on questions, get to the bottom of those questions, use the, the content coming out of that to begin to draw conclusions and create the breadcrumb between what we explored and what we're recommending. That can okay. just take a few weeks. To me, that's not a lot of time in the context of the big rocks and the big- Well, risk. you're reducing your risk by taking this time. I mean, you're making sure that you're accounting for all the things you need to account for or that you can think of that you would need to account for. Yeah, exactly. Because we'll never be 100% right. And we never have all of the uh, unknown unknowns, right? But yeah. basically, our job as leaders and uh, employees and companies is just, you know, to the best of our ability to service the unknowns, um, okay. you know, wait, wait them, reason through them, synthesize them and say, okay, based on that, here's what makes sense. And yeah. then we start getting head nods around the table. And that feels really great. Okay. So you just, you said something when you referenced the Kahneman book that kind of i think made this click into place a little bit more for me which is i just want to check with you on it 
the decision sprint, that this model, this practice is helping an organization develop the ability to use their system to brain. 100%. That's my obsession. As I want Whereas sure. a lot of the other ones, it's just build something like <laughs> system one. Build something and what do you observe? Build something, what do you observe? Yeah. Build something, what do you observe? And so I look at the idea, idea of fail forward and you have 100 experiments going on. That is a, another way forward. I mean, probably those 100 experiments, you know, and in you know Amazon's data science team or Facebook's data science team is disambiguating something it's making something more clear but maybe it's making a small thing more clear yeah. i'm talking about the big things that were actually get our company from you know a to b in terms of a north star and you know taking those unknowns and tackling them directly okay. uh, i think that's the fact those are the bigger yardage gains in yeah. my view so instead of just throwing 50 punches, you're going to throw one punch, but it's going to be a really, really thoughtful punch. <laughs> yes. it's gonna, which, I don't know which boxing movie captures that, but it, it, that would be a good analogy. Okay. So, all right. So we have the questions. We start to to go through testing them out. Um, and then what's what happens next? Imagine a scenario where basically you could... Um, have a heat map of the conclusions that people drew based on the exploration. Okay. Which usually has a few layers to it. You usually don't draw one conclusion like, oh, this is a good idea, or we should not do this, or we should do this. It's much more layered than that. Usually yeah. it's that we should definitely do this. However, the complexity we're going to need to solve for why. And here is where we should tread a little carefully on this part, but the other part, you know, we should go full steam. Um, you know, for example, or maybe we should go big, but we shouldn't talk about it too much in the marketplace yet for a variety of reasons. Um, you know, usually the conclusions uh, that you draw, um, you know, they have a few layers into the types of actions you would begin to take. But I guess just high level, what you want to do is see where you have alignment and where you don't have alignment. If people yeah. already agree on some aspect, don't talk about it anymore. It's done. Okay. We already talk about where we don't agree, where there's not alignment, and explore okay. are, are people coming to different conclusions? Because the answers are usually they did not connect information in, in the same way, which can yeah. be a conversation, or they're seeing something that we didn't see, which is important to know as soon as possible because okay. it could modify the direction. So when you say decision sprint, that's not a single decision like you might get out of a spike. This is a whole bunch of decisions based on very thoughtful exploration and testing and and then putting them all together and looking at them all on the table at the same time. Correct. I mean, decision sprint itself is actually a system. It's system two for companies. Okay. And so that's really what I'm offering is, you know, for any, you know, initiative or problem uh, whatever stage it's at is like, how do we activate this system too, so that we can navigate this this journey where the where there's more questions and answers to the point where there's more clarity and execution is sort of we prime the pump for execution. We kind of are moving from to develop a plan and execute a plan, you know. So that whole part is what I'm offering. But yeah, to answer your question, 100%. The building block is usually a problem statement or an initiative. And around that, of course, there can be a lot of different actions that you'd, you'd want to take. 
Okay. How do you know when you're done? Like, how do you know when you've asked enough questions and it's time to actually go build stuff? Well, I think you you do want feedback loops. And so the first feedback loop in the methodology I offer is that, let's say you have this two-piece of team, they've developed a question list. Before they start um, you know, answering questions that they've come up with, they should share and socialize the question list with one or two sponsors to validate, are we missing anything, you know, et cetera, okay. et cetera. So I think that's like a very simple aspect. But of course, I think we also need to see how confident the team feels that this question list canvases, you know, all the milks and crannies of, of the problem that they're trying to explore. So some data around that I think would be would be really useful. In other words, like, okay, you know, on a scale of one to 10, you know, we're feeling like this is, you know, an eight, you know, and that might be good enough to get going, but it's, I think it's informative. So feedback loops are important. Now this also then maybe gets us into a little bit of the future AI components here, because um, I do imagine that as more initiatives go through something like uh, this sort of methodology, you begin to build up a real, uh, you know, data lake here, and you can get really interesting analytics and AI that give you signals around whether you're on track or not. Okay, what would an example of one of those signals be? Well, let's say that uh, exactly to pick up where we left off is, you know, is our question list good enough? Okay. And if we just look at the current initiative we're working on and people independently vote on their confidence level, and let's say it's an eight, eight out of 10, right? That's just yeah. one. That's kind of informative, but it's not in any context. However, if we had you know, a data lake of similar initiatives, let's say all previous innovation initiatives at our company, and those things were further along, and we also knew how they progressed, including their outcomes, right? Like, oh, did it work out? Did it not work out? Well, you know, analytics and certainly AI will be able to help us point our finger on whether there's some similar characteristics of what this okay. is, you know, exhibiting and, and, and relative to that data lake, find some of those patterns and give you an indicator. Hmm. Well, maybe you have um, some weakness here or, um, you know, you're on track relative to yeah. that did have good outcomes. Okay. So one of the things I would like to talk a little bit about is, is how the people listening to this podcast would fit in into this, this system because they are project managers or scrum masters or product owners. Um, and you have different roles that you, you talk about in the book. Um, could you talk about the roles on the decision sprint team that somebody could play who's coming from from the background that I just described? Sure. Well, it's a huge role because I see um, like your PM, program manager, project manager, for example, right. upholders of the workflow because we're in an era where I think the workflow really matters. And if you're um, trying to spread a culture of innovation, but doing it with speed and quality and up to a level the, of scrutiny that we now face, you know, in a yeah. recessionary environment, the workflow tells you if if you're kind of getting that sweet spot of speed and quality. And so, um, you know, one role for for a PM is basically explaining the workflows. You know, why are we starting okay. developing a question list? What comes after that? What's the point at which we can basically do a meeting where we're trying to do alignment? So okay. I have a phrase in my book, 
you know, exploration before alignment. That's like a mantra. So we say, well, we're doing exploration before alignment. This is when we do alignment and the steps leading to that. Here they are laying that out, I think is huge value for, for a company because it settles everybody down. We kind of have the, yeah. the sort of this progress bar of where are we now? Where are we going to go? And it's, it really creates the space for the working team to do their best work. So that's the first thing. Okay. Um, but I think even there, there are very concrete things the project manager can do. So for example, <clears throat> giving uh, members of the working team, you know, a few days to independently share the questions that they think are important for for the exploration and right. making those suggestions keeping those people on track to make the to suggest the right questions to suggest questions of any kind i think that's yeah. a step pulling okay. those together cleaning up that list <clears throat> and then once a good list of questions is available um you know assigning roles for you know who's going to take point to answer a question but also okay. Review the answers to these questions you know, based on the competency uh, that's required. You know that's all work, work that needs to be you know taken care of and done in some streamlined way. Okay, so it's like a mix of um, facilitation and coordination, creating and holding a space, but then taking the results and actually making them useful for people. Absolutely, yeah. You make okay. them consumable for people. You break you break down the work and then you always relate it back to the overall like where are we in the progress bar of the workflow right okay we are here and here's where, where we're going next and lining that up with the milestones because let's face it some things are out of our control from a calendar yeah. standpoint. if the ceo's next slot is you know one month from now then we need to work backwards to to okay. be ready for the content we need right all right so in the book, towards the end of the book, you dig into a lot of the more future-focused topics. You talk about AI, you talk about blockchain, things like that. Um, it seems to me like AI could just take a lot of these jobs that <laughs> just give people not or less to do. How does AI work into all this? Well, it fits in as an excellent compliment. I mean, okay. first of all, um, decision sprint as a methodology is very natural language based as you'll see okay. because it starts with questions it works with answers to help feed con drawing conclusions coming up with recommendations and you know helping you get to decision points yeah so it's natural language based and when i was writing the book i couldn't have imagined you know the the buzz <clears throat> the buzz around generative ai <laughs> um, so then it calls that into question where you know you might say well <clears throat> Hey, why doesn't the generative AI come up with the right questions or help develop the answers to the questions? And so my thought on this is we're at a pivotal time where we want to make sure that leaders and uh, executives don't weaponize AI against knowledge workers, uh, but instead um, help and uh, use generative AI as an enabler of their work. So let me break that down. Yeah. So you're in a meeting. You're with, with the CEO. What let's come up with a good use case and a, a, a less than optimal use case. The less than optimal use case is that the team puts like their three page document on the table mm -hmm. and they explain it. And then somehow the, the CEO has worked with Chad GBT or Bard and asked his or her own questions and uh and then starts to compare that to the team and say, hmm, well, I asked 
the generative AI these questions. Right. This was what it said. How come I didn't see that in your document? You know what I mean? Because the, the technology could never be wrong. Exactly. And maybe half the time it's like, oh, well, that was actually wrong, right? Yeah. But, you know, how things work in the political environment of companies, even if, you know, there was one useful nugget there that was missing in the work of the team, you know, <clears throat> it could reduce the confidence level in their work, which yeah. is necessarily the right thing. And it absolutely works against trust and people doing their best work. Yeah. So I'm completely against that. And yeah. so, but at the same time, we need to use this as enabling technology. So a better way for this to work would be for the team to, you know, tap generative AI to uh, basically get suggestions on important considerations that should be part of the work that they're doing. And, okay. and bring that into their work, you know, where, where it's useful and additive. And then instead, I imagine meetings where the team puts their three-pager on the document and guess what? Then we have Appendix A, which is raw output from, from ChatGBT. Okay. And all that does is say, we did the work. We're showing yeah. you the work. This ha this was like a really raw output. Half of it was not useful. Some of it was. We brought in one or two considerations. They're reflected in our work. Okay. It's just a matter of um, making sure you did utilize that resource and yeah. that the human capital it was really what what put the you know the the real answers and the real yeah. sort of clarity on the table, if that makes sense. Yeah, one of, one of the guys I've been talking with AI about. Um, I did an interview with him recently, and he he referred to it as pairing with the AI, which I thought was a really cool way of kind of explaining. It's not that he's offloading the work and just kicking it down the road because it. It's him and the AI together. He's creating the questions. The AI is just responding. He's helping the AI fine tune its response until you get what you need. Yeah, uh, that iteration with AI, I think, works. But I think it goes way beyond that because what we're not talking about yet is the private uh, chat GPTs and the private BARD repositories. <clears throat> I'm referring to the knowledge repos repositories that are specific to a given company. It's really their intellectual capital as a living system. It doesn't exist, but that's what we're moving towards. That's really my end game uh, in terms of what I wanna enable. And so let me break that down, where today, if if you went to any company and said, tell me about your top 10 priorities or initiatives. Yeah. What do you know? What do you don't know? Where are we against that? Um, if your top, you know, if, if your project lead for each one of those left, how much institutional knowledge would get out the door? Like, you know, there's not really a living system for um, what we're learning and the intellectual capital we're creating, yeah. you know, around these big initiatives our companies are, are pursuing. But there will be, because if you take a system like Decision Sprint, where you're breaking it down into building blocks of things like FAQs, mm -hmm. that's that is a representation of your knowledge. Then when you take the layers of AI like BARD or ChatGPT and you point it at it, now you get meetings where you do have people and leaders and an empty chair for the AI companion mm -hmm. and you begin to ask it questions. You know, it's in the meeting because, and it's not replacing humans because it's knowledge actually came from our people to begin with, but you will be able to ask it questions like, did we miss anything or... Yeah. 
is there um, is there anything we should be thinking about when it comes to the feasibility that we hadn't thought of? You know, or legal? Yeah. How, are there any legal considerations to yeah. this amazing new you know consumer uh, social network? Yes, <laughs> you know you will be able to ask it questions and it will uh, will come back and represent the the knowledge of the company. Okay. This is really exciting. So, and there's a lot of where there's a part of me that's afraid that AI is going to take a lot of jobs away. But the more conversations I have about it, the more it seems like it might take some jobs away or change some jobs, but it's creating whole new fields of work that have never existed before, extending knowledge work to like a level that was unimaginable five years ago. Well, who's going to curate all this knowledge? (laughs) Yeah. We need roles for that, you know? So if I'm a project manager and I apply myself to something like things that are not just execution, that's really my main purpose in the book is get us to diversify. And that's just the system one execution focus. Mm-hmm. Execution is king. It's not king, actually. It's it's, it's sort of expected. It's just it's like showing up for school. Mm-hmm. You don't get any points for it. <laughs> yeah. You know? It's really this, um, the thinking work in the company, there's a system for that, which is, you know, I offer one alternative for it. There could be others, all good. But then how are we going to curate all that knowledge that's coming out of there to keep it current and fresh so that it can, you know, produce the right data, the right signals? I think there's going to be a lot of action there, you know, as we look at the next 10 years. Okay. I know that you're working on a tool that will help people with this. Could you, would you mind talking about that a little bit? Sure. So I started a company called Ritual. It's ritual.work. Um, I'm the CEO and co-founder. My co-founder, uh, Mike Vo, is a creative technologist with a background at companies like Facebook. And together, um, you know, we've basically gone after um we basically have started with a very simple proposition, which is an app for any team to build and run explorations. So they can take an initiative or an idea, frame a problem statement, and then put together a set of collaborators who would build an exploration um, and run it in order to produce things like FAQs or narratives, content for their meetings to be more clear on um, you know, why their idea makes sense or to get people to buy in or say yes or no to an idea that they're proposing. Okay. So it's it's a simple start. Um, but I do believe that things like this, and there will be others, are basically the building blocks for um, kind of building a, a, the collective brain of the company and giving it, uh, making it into a living system. So for example, for an initiative that we're working on, you know, what do we know? Uh, what are the questions we're trying to explore? Um, you know, all of that, that, that information, you know, begins to get, uh, some structure and therefore we can turn it into data. And with data, we can get analytics and AI around, um, yeah, how it's going. Yeah. Are, are we confident? Are we going to get there? Uh, are we stuck? You know, all those things out in the future begin to be things that we can uh, have a move from guesswork to more di- data-driven. Okay. This is fascinating. Um, what have we not, what have I not asked about that people need to know about it? Well, I guess, you know, I mean, we're I uh, like, why now, right? Like 
I was inspired to write this book. I didn't have something I saw in the news, which made me say, let me write this right now. But kind of instinctively, I knew through my work experience that companies are not very good at, you know, getting into uh, new territory because they're, they don't react well to the unknowns. Mm -hmm. Um, And now we're in an environment where I think all the needle movers in your company are basically probably new territory for you Mm -hmm. um, as, as project teams. And so we need, uh, you know, ways of working that help us take unknowns on head, head on and make them actionable. Okay. And this is, I think, very timely now because there's just a lot more scrutiny in our initiatives and our projects. Yeah. So the bar for innovation is, you know, companies talk out of both sides of their mouth. They need innovation more than ever. Um, but don't mess with the thing that makes us all the money. Exactly. And, the scru- and that's why the scrutiny is quite high. Yeah. So they need to be pretty sure. So how do you navigate that? That's sort of why we need a way of thinking about you know, moving from ideas to action. Okay. That will meet the quality bar and the scrutiny that we now right. face as teams. And I, th- I think that's where I would I would focus. Okay. Cool. This is really great. So um, I know you've got a newsletter, Rewire, which people can subscribe to on your LinkedIn page. Um, they can pick up the book at Amazon. What if they want to reach out to you directly? Is there a way for them to do that? Should their AI call your AI? <laughs> Well, we're not at that level yet, but yeah, there's, um, I'm definitely reachable over LinkedIn because people can easily message me and I look at those, um, in my newsletter, people comment and I I reply. Um, and then my website decisionsprint.com has a contact form. So uh, there's definitely, um, ways to, to reach out there. And I take input on ideas to cover in my next newsletter, or if people need, you know, or hands-on help in their organizations, you know, those are the kinds of things where, you know, um, I welcome correspondence. So yeah, thanks for- Awesome. I appreciate you doing this. This is really interesting stuff. Um, and I hope and I hope that people will check it out because I think it could be a great way to fill some of the gaps that they have, especially the people that are running right to building things without that thoughtful part. I love the idea of the system too, the, the way of the building system too in your company. Exactly. I mean, sometimes, you know, you have this brilliant idea that's been out there for 20 years by this Nobel Prize winner, and we just need to apply it to things that a lot of us do every day in companies, right? We just try and solve problems. So just connecting those dots, I think if I can have done made a dent in that, I I will be very uh, happy to have contributed. (laughs) Cool. Well, thank you very much for doing this. Yeah, you're welcome. It's great to be with you. (music) 